Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. You're a beautiful sight. Burr. <laughs> Anybody else notice that as you get older, you get colder? <laughs> Thank God for long underwear and hot cocoa. <laughs> okay, this morning, uh, this week, uh, we're back in the book of Genesis. And um, now we're up to verse 2. Tonight we're covering verse 1 and 2. Now, according to my calculations, with there being 1,533 verses in Genesis, we will finish the book of Genesis in the month of April in the year of 2053. <laughs> A lot of us won't be here to see the finish. <laughs> So let's see if I've got this down now. As we go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. In the darkness... The darkness covered the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. This is Holy Scripture, this is the Word of God, and this is the truth. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this beautiful place of worship. And for the multitudes that uh, have gathered here this morning for a common purpose. To praise you, to worship you, and to express our deep gratitude for what you have done for us. We are needy people, Lord, indeed. We need you more today than yesterday, and more tomorrow than today, ever increasing. We are but branches that are helpless without being firmly attached to you, the true vine. Our time here together this morning would be pretty meaningless towards our purpose without your blessings and manifest presence. We humbly ask for both and for a special anointment upon Today's message that our pastor has prayerfully prepared. Let not even one word be wasted, but all that would, would find its target in the hearts, minds, and souls of all in attendance. And all these things we ask in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Dan. When you uh, put things in perspective as you did, people are either going to stay or they're going to leave, one of the two. But even if you're not going to be here, Dan, for the conclusion of this series, (laughs) you'll know more than I will because you'll all be like, I just talked right to Jesus himself, so he told me all things. Um. Many of you know this, but uh, I was actually praying, as I was praying coming in today with all the frigid weather, and I know weather can kind of change things, I was like, we might be circling the wagons on this Sunday morning. I'm not really sure. We'll see what the response is like. But thank you all for coming up here anyways. I know we have a live stream audience that's also participating with us as well, but thank you for coming together. I think physical presence matters. And uh, maybe we don't always think it does in the moment, but it really does. Just seeing one another uh, and being seen by one another, it really matters. It's part of our worship. It is part of the way in which we get to be intentional with one another. So thank you so much for coming. Um, most of you know this, but uh, Luke, it's good to see you too, brother. I was just thinking about you this week. You're almost done, right? Almost done in the Coast Guard, okay. Almost on your way out, ready to head back and be reunited with your wife, right? Okay, right on. That's awesome. Um, 
I've been meaning to say this, but I keep getting distracted by as I see you. When there's less people in here, I see you, and so you're not able to hide as well either. So, so yeah, so now we get to spread out. I'm gonna, just kind of having these little epiphanies or moments, and uh, so be ready to respond. Um, most of you know this, but uh, part of the, the preparation for me moving into this lead pastor role was the elders wanted me to pursue a doctorate of ministry. And so uh, kind of prior to even taking on this position, I pursued a doctorate of ministry. And Corey can f- speak to this firsthand as well because uh, he's in a master's program right now. But it's, it's, a, uh, it's, an, a, it's actually a very fun process, but it's not a... Um, kick your feet up and just relax process either, you know, requires all, all the extra available time that you thought you had. Every evening is devoted towards reading and reading and trying to keep up with stuff. And so it is a pretty uh, focused uh, season of life. And uh, one of the realities of a doctor program uh, is that you go through all this coursework, it's great, you're interacting with a lot of different people, uh, a lot of different topics and, and theological subjects, and then they have this thing, the finality of the program is this daunting word called a dissertation. Anybody written a dissertation before? I don't recommend it. Actually, I'm thankful for the process, but it is not a, a process that... Uh, comes easily, let alone quickly. And of course, moving into it, I was incredibly naive about what I was walking into. So I was actually pretty excited. I was like, oh yeah, you have to really dive deep into a subject and write exhaustively about some kind of subject. So I was actually excited because I was so ignorant to what I was actually saying yes to. And sometimes ignorance is bliss, uh, and dissertation is one of those moments. And so I, I launched into it, but I found myself at the very beginning kind of struggling a little bit because... Um, I was like, maybe I'll, t- I'll, I'll write on this subject, or maybe I'll write on this subject. And of course, there's always this uh, a surreal reminder, because in the world of theology, what hasn't already been written on, right? And of course, if you understand how a dissertation functions or its purpose, a dissertation really has kind of one of two focuses or things about it. You're either answering a question that you're hoping to, you know, eventually come to an answer to, or you're seeking to identify a problem that you will at least in a supportive way, solve through the writing of your dissertation. Um, and so I was grappling with that. And finally, there was a point where I finally, you know, when I was talking to the guy who was directing our, our process for writing this dissertation, I was like, man, I'm just struggling here because I'm interested in this and I'm interested in that and I'm interested in this other thing. But am I really that? Am my dissertation interested? Am I really interested? Do I want to spend months, well, in this case, years on this process and not grow weary or tired or bored? And finally, the, uh, the, the professor asked me, he's like, Aaron, what is the one question you're asking in your life and ministry? And that really just brought everything into crystal focus for me. It was like, what is that one question you're asking? What he was really getting at before I launched into this pursuit of completing a dissertation was this. He's asking, like, what is your objective? What is your goal? What is your purpose in writing? And it can't be because you told me to, because you'll never finish. There's actually, I don't know what the stats are now, but 85% of, uh, of doctoral students in at least getting people pursuing a doctorate of ministry do not finish because of the dissertation. So you have to have more purpose and motivation than just, I got to do this in order to finish my program. Most people just take the coursework and then they're just kind of, they're done because the dissertation is very consuming uh, in its uh, in its expectations. But when he asked that question, what are you, what is the question you're really asking right now in your life and ministry? What is your goal? What is your objective? What is your purpose? That brought everything into focus because I knew the question I was asking. And it really, when I, when I was able to conclude or kind of distill my thoughts down to one singular question and purpose, it, everything was just green light from there. All of a sudden, I was really excited to write this paper, even though it still took a very long time. All of a sudden, like, and one of the purposes behind identifying that objective or that purpose is that everything you write is centered around that one objective or purpose. Now, you're probably sitting here right now this morning going, 
what in the world are we talking about here? I have no intention of writing a dissertation. Uh, I hope to never, after you're describing it, ever write a dissertation. Um, But I think you'll understand why I'm starting out in this way in just a moment. What I'm getting at is this. My goal or my objective determine ultimately what I eventually wrote, as well as what I chose to not write about. It really centered me on this is my focus, and everything else has its place, but that is not the purpose or focus or objective of writing this paper. And it actually gives you a clear direction as well as clear boundaries to stay within. Let me ask you a question. I love asking questions. What is God's objective? What is God's purpose? What is his goal in communicating to us through the Holy Scriptures? What do you think? We can make this open up. Why not? We're pretty kind of like a family-like here right now. So go ahead, Isabel, go ahead. To restore us to him. Yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah. Not the one I'm looking for, but that's a good answer. I'm just <laughs> What, 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 what is the purpose of God revealing what he has, has to us? Relationship? Okay, yeah. What else? Glory to himself, yeah. Being like Jesus, absolutely. There's a, by the way, all those answers are absolutely correct. There are actually multiple purposes, but if we were to kind of uh, summarize that in one distinct or uh, decisive phrase, I would think we would say this, Scripture is all about God making himself known. Scripture is all about God making himself known with the intent to evoke our worship of him and to live for his glory alone. That's it. I mean, there's a lot of other purposes or sub-purposes behind that, but if we were to distill it down to one statement, Scripture is all about God making himself known so that it might evoke or encourage our worship of him and ultimately live for the glory of his name alone. You know, because Scripture is about approximately 70% narrative, It's easy for you and I to probably think that the Bible is predominantly a a bunch of stories that have just been compiled over the the ages of human history, right? And it's easy to think that it's all we are is we're just looking at the past number, you know, thousands of years, and we're seeing the progression of what has happened and what hasn't happened in different people groups around the world. But that is not the intent of Scripture, Stories that we read in Scripture are not just randomly chosen. They weren't just the ones that were found in the Dead Sea Scroll caves, you know, or anything like that. The, the, what, the, the intent of Scripture is all about God making himself known. I mean, yes, the Bible is filled with historical events. And yes, there is much to learn about the, the progression of the human race throughout the ages. By the way, when I say progression, I'm not talking about progress, Sometimes we think progression, and though it's a derivative of progress, not all progression is progress. Um, You can be progressive, but not evoke progress. I'll put it that way. The primary intent of God's revelation to you, to me, to all people in the world, through 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years, is to make himself known so that you and I would become worshipers of God and reign, co-reign with him forever. That is why scripture was given to us. That is the objective. And this is why the first verse of the Bible is the foundational verse of the Bible. Dan, you memorize it. I think you remember right. You memorized it, right? I looked like your eyes were closed, so that's what I thought you were doing. But the first verse of the Bible is, so you memorized the most foundational verse of the Bible right at the very beginning. In the beginning, for those who didn't memorize it, in the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. Now, not only does verse 1 serve as an introduction to the creation account as detailed in the rest of chapter 1, but by beginning in this way, God introduces himself as the creator of everything. He's the creator of everything, which emphasizes uh, uh, really some important foundational truths for us all. And remember what I mentioned last week uh, in our kind of overview or introduction of Genesis, right? Genesis establishes some of the most important foundations for a biblical worldview. It answers some of the most poignant or deep-seated questions that you and I have, uh, and so we, it is important that we pay attention to what God has revealed about life, about reality, about the human race, about who He is, about what the meaning of life is. All those things are established right at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first foundational truth that we derive from that verse is this, that God is the main character of this book. Actually, he's the main character of all of Scripture for that matter. He is both the grammatical subject of this verse in these opening words, and he continues to be the main character throughout this chapter. Hence, what we will see over and again as we progress through chapter 1, again, verse by verse, right? (laughs) And God said... And God said, and God said, and God said, I guess it's all about God. And God said. A second foundational truth that you and I need to conform our lives to is this. If God created everything, then this also means that he is in charge of everything. And if he is the creator of everything who is in charge of everything, then he can do anything. You know, a a question that is raised time and again throughout the pages of Scripture that oftentimes the angels will kind of confront different human agents with, they will say, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for God? And of course, the answer is an emphatic and resounding, no, it's not. If God is able to create everything out of nothing by the word of his mouth, then there isn't anything that God cannot do. Now, of course, we could actually, you could challenge me at this moment, and I would receive that challenge because, again, as I think about that, I go, well, there are some things. God can't make you love him. You can't make someone love someone. You can make them do something. You can make them perform an action, but you can't make them respond or do that action out of love for somebody. So it doesn't mean that God can make us love him. However, he does love us in such a way that in turn it fosters a love for him. And we begin to grow in our love for God because of his eternal unending love for us. So what we've said so far, God is the main character of this book. If he created everything, he is also in charge of everything, and there's nothing too difficult for him. But this third foundational truth in this verse is that this, it refutes any attempt to establish a different origin or meaning of the world. You know, everybody's, everybody's, especially in the scientific realm, right, everybody's asserting some sort of truth, right, or theory, and they try to make it truth, or whatever it may be. But the fact is, we see that from the very beginning, Genesis 1, verse 1, refutes any attempt to establish a different origin or meaning of the world, meaning that being an atheist is counter-biblical. And of course, an atheist would not argue against that, but an atheist is one who does not believe in God. A, theist. Theist, theist means God. A means the negation of that. So it's an atheist. No God. Agnosticism, it also refutes any kind of agnosticism because it tells us clearly who, what God has done. Agnosticism says no one can really know. Can anybody really know the truth matter-of-factly? I mean, everybody can kind of decide for themselves, but no one can really tr- uh, decide for other people. We just, we just are left wondering all the time. It refutes any ideas of polytheism, which is multiple gods. It refutes uh, these other philosophies like humanism, which means it's not about God at all, but it's actually about us. 
Humanity is the, the cream of the crop, so to speak. You see, Genesis 1, verse 1, from the very beginning says this, it's, not, it's about God and all these other philosophies and ideas and, and world religions and other ideas put forward are basically refuted because of that. The irony is all other philosophies can be, really be lumped into one category. All other philosophies that are counter-biblical can be lumped into one category, and that is this. It is the category of unbelief. It's unbelief that there is a personal transcendent God who loves his creation and is bound and determined to care for his creation. Another interesting observation about verse 1 is that God doesn't begin his revelation with an apologetic appeal to defend his existence. It's kind of interesting. You almost kind of think at the very beginning, you're like, hey, I am God. Let me just tell you why I exist and, and let me give you some evidence for that. But he doesn't. He just basically says... I am. I exist. As if there's really no other reason to doubt that. As if to resonate with what the psalmist says in Psalm 14.1, only a fool says in their heart, there is no God. The point is this, the creation account and everything that follows establishes the most important truth for the human race. It's all about God. If you were to forget everything I say this morning, may you not forget this. It's all about God. And secondarily, how we as human beings are called or created to relate to Him and to co-reign with Him for eternity. Now, why are these truths so crucial for you and I to understand and accept? Why are, these, why, are they, why are they foundational to what we talked about last week, a biblical worldview? Because if you recall the pattern that I highlighted last week about the human race or human nature itself, I said this, left to ourselves, humans continually rebel and bring disorder into the world. Left to ourselves, human beings continually rebel and bring disorder into the world. And this occurs because human beings are born with a rebellious nature due to Adam and Eve's uh, choice to rebel. And And that ultimately, we make life all about us. For example, and we'll get to this, and we'll unpack this in more detail later, but the Tower of Babel, what was kind of the the statement that was posed in building the Tower of Babel? They wanted to make a name for themselves. It's kind of a premature humanism. It's all about us. It's not about God. It's about us. They wanted to live autonomously, where God is no longer the main character of the story or the point of it all, but now they are. And as I even mentioned last week, the spirit of autonomy is the root of all sin. You know, as I reflect on the propensity of how humanity thought and acted long ago, I cannot help but ask a couple of questions. First of all, is it any different today? Has anything really changed today? Or to make it even more personal, is it any different at various points in my own life? You know, how often do we exhibit the same rebellious spirit even when we as followers of Jesus may rightly proclaim, God, it's all about you, until, of course, God does something that we don't like or agree with. Or how much of our relationship with God is rooted with conditions, right? God, it's all about you and I'll follow you so long as fill in the blank. God, it's all about you as long as it's like this because this is what I like. You know, one of the greatest services that we can do for our own walk of faith as well as and how we can help one another pursue Jesus faithfully and in a healthy way, is to continually return to this foundational point of reference, a point of reference that has been established in the opening words of the Bible. Life 
is all about God. We are part of his story. And the sooner you and I accept this truth and allow this truth to, to be conformed to, uh, to have our lives conformed to this truth, the greater we position ourselves to understand and accept God's redemptive activity in the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, after, the be- after beginning with the most important detail of all creation, namely that God says it's all about me, you know, God then describes when and how matter, time, space all began in the first place, right? So we're going to unpack this kind of phrase by phrase or term by term, and I, I, I promise not to get too bogged down in any one thing, I hope. If I am, nod. <laughs> And I'll take that as a, my, my little cue here. But we're going to unpack this because, again, one of the, uh, I, even as I was sharing before service even started, this has been a fun journey of discovery for me, too. I've never dove into Genesis like I have been these past number of months in my case, uh, but it is really fun. I feel like I'm like kind of starting all over again, but really grappling with uh, these observations and these truths for the first time. And by the way, my desk is full of commentaries, and guess what? They don't all agree. So that makes it really fun and easy. Uh, so um, the fact is there are all kinds of perspectives and viewpoints out there. Thankfully, I discovered the right one, so you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> Just kidding. We're on a journey of discovery together, but let's break this down clause by clause because, again, what did I talk about last week? We all have a 21st century Western bias in which we interpret Scripture, and sometimes we're aware of those biases, sometimes we're not, and so we can't use Webster Dictionary or our common day vernacular to go, well, this is what the Bible says, this is what I think it means, this is how I interpret it, so that's what it means. No, we need to understand the context of Scripture in its context. And so we're going to unpack it and, and, and define it in its context, its ancient context, and draw application that is relevant for, relevant for us today. So let's get started here. In the beginning, clause by clause, I'm underlining the little sections that I'm going to be highlighting here. In the beginning... You know, many stories, or especially fairy tales for that matter, they all begin with the opening words of what? Once upon a time. That's exactly right. Well, the Bible starts off in a very similar manner, but not to convey a fictional story, but to communicate a real story. The story of the earth, the universe, how it all began, and who's responsible for everything. Now, what is unique about the beginning phrase in verse 1 is that it tells us that at one time, there was no time. At one time, time did not even exist, which, you know, is kind of, we can maybe understand in concept, but we can't understand experientially, right? You and I only know reality in the context of time, right? There's a time in which you were born. There's a time in which you will die. Every day we're marked by time. The alarm goes off and you have to get up to go to work or you have to get up to go to school or the, the clock uh, reaches a certain point and then eventually you go home from work or you get to go home from school and you have birthdays and holidays that organize your annual calendar and you have days of the week that organize your weekly calendar and you have minutes and hours that organize your day. Can you imagine living life in the absence of time? Well, some of you kind of live that way already, I think. Um, might be called retirement, I don't know, where it's just every day is a Friday, right? I'm just kidding. You deserve it. It's awesome. I'm not jealous at all. But the fact is, we, we live our lives and time is just constant. It's on, my, it's on my wrist. It's on your phone. It's, it's whatever it is. It's a constant reminding you. Either you're always late to something or you're early to something. Or maybe some of you are even on time to something. But from, day, from the moment we're consciously awake, from the moment we close our eyes, we are aware of time usually. In the beginning, God created time. 
We'll get to more in that in more de- definitive detail because in the first day, the first few days, we see that that time actually gets more specified and how it's organized. In the beginning, God. The name for God here is Elohim. Now, I know you don't have a Hebrew Bible, so you would not be able to know that. And so unless you looked at uh, you know, some Logos Bible software or you, act, you um, are like Corey and you get to read a Hebrew Bible right now because he's working through multiple semesters of Hebrew. But the word for God in Genesis 1 is Elohim. This word El or Elohim speaks to God's power and his majesty especially his power to create. I don't know if you recall, you probably don't, but I'll take, kind of bring a reminder to it. Way back in the summertime when we were going through our spiritual fitness, or in the spring maybe, when our, our spiritual fitness series, we were, I was talking about or preaching on the importance of Scripture, and I, and I brought you to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is also structured in a unique way where the first uh, number of verses to uh, refer to God as Elohim. And it, all it talks about is God's creation. And then it transitions and it focuses on Scripture, especially as it relates to human beings, and the name for God changes to Yahweh. Now, we might gloss over that and think, what's the big deal? You know, there's lots of names for God. You know, maybe the author's like going, let's, let's use this now, let's use that now. Actually, the names of God have significant meaning. As I said, El or Elohim refers to God's power and majesty, especially in his power to create. But in this example, when we get to Genesis 2, the name for God changes to Yahweh, which speaks to God's relationship with people. And once we get there, eventually, Genesis chapter 2 is all about how God formed humanity and his relationship with with specifically with Adam and Eve. I think another detail to highlight is that the name of God is always in the plural. Now, this is not necessarily intended to be extracted from the text, especially ancient Israel would not have made this connection in that moment. But where you and I are at in redemptive history, this is a very significant detail that is given to us at the very beginning of God's revelation to us. Because God, or Elohim being in the plural, even though it's used in the singular sense, really refers to that God is one, yet he is also at the same time more than one. Now, we, you know, Trinity or triunity, those kind of terms are not used explicitly in Scripture, but they're definitely alluded to very clearly in Scripture. And as I said, you and I are in a place in redemptive history where we can grasp the significance of God being plural, that God is one God, but he is also three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, if you survey the whole pages of Scripture, the Spirit of God, the the Son of God, and God the Father are all part, uh, have an active role in the creation of the universe especially the earth. I think an interesting, another final detail to highlight about the mention of God here is that God has no beginning, right? Everything has a beginning. Even my kids even ask this question. They're like, wait a second, everything starts at some point and God doesn't? He just always was? Don't try to understand it. Sometimes we have to accept things that we cannot understand. This is, I know, somewhat countercultural because sometimes people think, I only believe what I can understand. But that's actually not true because we, buy, we believe all kinds of things we don't really understand. This is one of those points. Sometimes we have to accept what God reveals to us even though it blows our mind. God never had a beginning. He always was. I mean, try to fathom eternity just for a moment in the context of a time-oriented space. We can't. We just accept it accordingly. In the beginning, God created. The Hebrew word for created is bara, and it is used exclusively for God in every occurrence that it is used in Scripture. Now, the contrast here is this. You know, human beings, we can make things, we can form things, we can build things, but it is only God who can create in the way that he does. 
And we are not going to be talking about it this morning, but we'll be talking about it more uh, next weekend. But the point is this, that only God can create can create things as he did. Only God can speak by the word of his mouth and things that have no prior existence can now have existence. You know, the law of thermodynamics says this, matter cannot be created nor destroyed, right? Our, our world and that we are bound within kind of tells us that. It's an observed, uh, not just a theory anymore, but it's a law. And it's true of everything and everyone else except God. Matter cannot be created nor destroyed except when it comes to God. And God, by the spoken word of his mouth, though he doesn't have a literal mouth as you and I have a mouth, it says that God spoke and everything that once had no existence now has existence. In the beginning, God created. What did he create? The heavens and the earth. There's a there's a, a, a phrase, this phrase is kind of something that the scripture uh, refers to it kind of in a poetic fashion. It's a poetic expression that uh, basically meaning that God made everything. It talks about a holistic or an ent- it's all about entirety of something. For example, when the Bible says day and night, it means all the time. When it talks about man and beast, it refers to all created things or physical beings. When the Bible says heavens and earth, heaven and earth or heavens and earth, it's referring to the heavens, all the universe, all the space and the earth and everything that is in them. In the beginning, what did God create? Everything is how our translation should, uh, should conclude. God created everything. If you can see it, smell it, hear it, everything, God created it. Now we're getting to verse 2. How are we doing? We doing all right? Okay. The earth was without form and void. Your your Bibles may not actually denote this or not, but it actually starts in the literal translation with an and or now. And all throughout creation is, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. I will explain to you why that is in just one second. The whole point is this, that God's creation by the word of his mouth is all done in a ordered, sequential manner. God creates everything in a sequential and ordered and highly structured manner manner. Now, I don't know, when, when I was a kid, and even the point where I really dove into it for this particular uh, sermon series, uh, I think of, I read words like, and the earth was without form and void. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Everything has a shape to it, right? How can the, how can the earth have no form? Doesn't everything have some kind of form to it, even if it seems weird looking? How does the earth have no form Void seems straightforward, but without form or formless? Let me explain. When you the the word formless and void really refers to the world or the earth at that time being unproductive, functionless, a wasteland, a chaotic mass of sorts. In other words, when God created everything, everything was done in a sequential order, but it did not begin in its final form. So eventually, when God began to create, he chose to create everything in a sequential manner. And it did not start out complete. It started out in kind of an infancy stage and gradually became complete after six days of creation. Void is pretty straightforward. It means empty, uninhabited, solitary, or, or lonely. And so what we're getting at, right from the very beginning of verse 2, when God created everything... Verse 1 count, uh, really acts as an introduction to all of God's creation. And then we get to verse 2 and we see it starts out kind of rough. It starts out kind of messy in a sense, but it's just going to get better and better and better and better each day that God has chosen to create. The earth was without form and it is without void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, much like the meaning of the phrase without form and void, This word for darkness over the face of the deep tells us that God's creation is not yet complete. Darkness can be um, really understood as the absence of light. 
And since light wasn't created till verse 3, we see that darkness is the inevitable reality of God's creation at this point. Until God created light and displaced darkness, darkness is kind of, that's what it is. And deep refers to the earth as this kind of watery chaos, so to speak. And the word is actually the same word as abyss or even sheol. And so we had this kind of this kind of deep, chaotic, watery mass that just, it's like God's starting to create things, but it does not look like the world that we inhabit today, but it will one day. The point that I'm getting at, or the point that verse 2 is telling us, is that God will create light. He will create land. He will continue to create order. But right now, there is darkness and deep. Interesting thought, by the way. Because the world is a watery mass, if you're wondering, how in the world could God flood the world? It began as a watery mass. All the water's there. And as we'll see in the days of creation, it gets separated and there's partition in different spots, both in the, in, the, in the earth, on the earth, and in the atmosphere. But it began as a kind of a chaotic, watery mass. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Interesting final clause at the end of verse 2. You know, so far up to this point, you almost get this picture that God isn't present. You almost get this idea that almost God is absent from everything because everything is kind of like we think of God and everything's ordered and structured, and that would be true or right to think of God in that way. And again, as we even talked about last week, whatever God brings, he brings order and, and, and unity. And wherever God is absent, there is disorder and chaos and disunity. But we see in verse 2 at the very end, it says the presence of God is actually very present. Even in the seeming chaos of this watery world, the Holy Spirit is there. Meaning that this unproductive and uninhabited world at this point was very much under the attentive care of the Holy Spirit who hovered over it and guaranteed its future development. I think there's a very interesting parallel to how the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters and how he is actively working in your life and in my life. When I consider how God's cre- the, how the, consider the, uh, God's creation of the heavens and the earth the sequence in which he created all things and his attentive care in the midst of an incomplete creation, I cannot also help but reflect on God's attentive care both in our salvation and in our sanctification. Look at what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 6. When we were utterly helpless... We could say that life is in a spiritual chaos. Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. And, those of, and for those of us in here that are saved, the Bible says that in Christ you are now a new creation. Isn't that amazing? When God saved you, he says, you're a new creation. He's given you a new heart. You are not the old self. You are now a new self. That's amazing, right? And yet some of us might go, yeah, but my life doesn't always reflect a new creation. You know why? Because you are not yet complete. You are not in your final state. You are declared and given a new creation, and yet at the same time, you are a work in progress a work in which the Spirit is committed to refining you and transforming you until one day at the day of Christ, you will be complete. And so what's very fascinating to me, uh, IBC family, is this, that at the very beginning of creation, creation gives us a template of how God is supernaturally working in our lives. 
Isn't that amazing? God is, God is saying like, hey, I started creation. I'm, by the word of my mouth, all things find their existence, but it, there's a sequential process to it. And at the end of six days and the starting of the seventh day, God's going to look and say, everything is very good. It's going to be very good. But there's a process. And the same is true in our walk of faith. It is a process. There's a definitive moment in which the Spirit of God takes resident in your life. There's a definitive moment in which you went from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of the enemy, to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There's a moment in time in which you were once lost and now you are found, where you were an orphan and now you are adopted into the family of God. That is a definitive, decisive moment. You are now saved. And yet, God is committed by his spirit to sanctify you, to transform you, to remake you so that that new creation that he has begun will one day be complete. But you are not there yet. Right now, sometimes maybe some of you are experiencing the the chaotic waters of reality in your life. But understand this, the Holy Spirit is not absent. He is with you. And even in the beginning of time, the Spirit of God was present, though it seemed like nothing was present. God was there, and he's there for you. He has never left you. In fact, he promises to never leave you. He promises to never forsake you. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Perhaps in your life right now, The greatest definition of your reality is chaos, disorder, dysfunction, confusion. And the one question is, I don't know what to do. Maybe it's not. Praise the Lord for that. Maybe it's just a matter of time. But maybe you be encouraged by what we see from the very beginning of God's created order. That even though creation, just as creation is a process, so is your sanctification. And his presence by his spirit is with you right now. He has never left you. Our job is to listen. To listen to what he is trying to say to you. To position yourself in such a way so that you can glean all that he has for you. A second point I just want to highlight, and I don't want to take too much time on this at all, but some of the questions you may be asking at the the outset of this Genesis series is, or maybe that you have grappled with or you're going to grapple with or currently grappling with is, well, what does the Bible say about evolution? Right. What, what, what does the Bible say about, uh, is the, can the earth, is the young earth young or is it old? Is it billions of years or are we talking thousands of years? Is evolution even possible? I mean, is it possible that God, you know, what we call theistic evolution, is it possible that God used the means of evolution to create everything that is in existence? And let me just say this in response. It's okay to ask questions. It's good, in fact, to ask questions. We need to continue, but we need to continually return to the intent of why Scripture was given in the first place. As I mentioned in the very beginning, it's a, the, the Scripture, the revelation of God was given for the ultimate purpose of making Himself known. And the second part of God's intent of revelation is to show us the way of salvation. That is why God has given us his divine revelation is to show us the way of salvation. I think Galileo said it well. He says, the Bible tells us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. The point is this. Sometimes we want the Bible to say things that it doesn't actually say. And, and whatever we've kind of been uh, confronted with or whatever has been introduced in our, in our minds or in our conversations, we go, what does the Bible say? And sometimes we get frustrated because we're like, well, doesn't Genesis 1 say matter-of-factly that the earth is this old or that old? And the answer is no. It's not a scientific book. It was never intended to be a scientific book, so we can't make it a scientific book. 
That's why we get so tripped up sometimes or wrapped around the actual, well, the Bible said this, but that's inconsistent with the saying here. You're missing the point of the genre of literature. You're missing, you're trying to read it like a scientific textbook when it's not intended to be that in the very first place. So if God wanted to give us details about how old or how young the earth is, he would have said so. Now we'll get to timing starting next week even more. Because there are some indications, especially in, God, in the, the context of God's redemptive plan. But if God wanted to give us some details, he would have given it very clearly to us. But we must understand that the agenda of Genesis is a theological agenda, not a scientific one or a historical one. So what I'm getting at is let's not get tangled around details and questions that may be common for us to grapple with today, and that's okay, but that's not the intent of Scripture, and therefore we can't use Genesis in, in this case to argue for a, an old earth or did God do this or did God do that. It's like, let's stick to what it, God did intend to communicate and then draw relevant application from what he does reveal. We always need to ask this question, what does the text say in its context? What does the text say in its context? And then we are able to ascertain what it means for our lives. When you think about matters of first importance or the things that matter most, we, again, we can all have questions, but Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, in consideration of all the questions that you and I may have, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, have we answered the most important question? In other words, the most important question is, isn't, could evolution be true or not? I'm not saying that's an invalid question. I'm saying, what's the most important question? And the most important question that Scripture confronts us with time and again is this. Have you repented of your sin? Is your name written in the book of life? When it's all said and done, why is the Bible given to us? Not only for God to make himself known, but to show us the way of salvation. And we see that the way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. 